Today we're looking at a story which is probably familiar to you whether you have a background in church or not. We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now even if we don't know all the ins and outs of the story, most of us probably just know what it is to be a Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan, of course, is someone who is willing to help someone, whether a stranger or a neighbor. And in fact, we've adopted that language to the point where even here in BC, we have legal protection for people who help someone who's critically ill or injured in an emergency situation called the Good Samaritan Act. And so this has become one of those things that's sort of been ingrained in our language, in our culture. And so I know that when I start to talk, even when I said the parable of the Good Samaritan, that you probably already had a idea in your mind of what I'm going to say. And whether consciously or unconsciously, you've maybe already filled in your sermon notes if you've been around in the church for any time at all. But what I'd encourage you to do today is to sort of stop that urge to fill in the blanks because I think if we're willing to, if we're open to the Holy Spirit's leading, that we will see as we study our passage this morning that God wants to reveal some new things to us. At least that was my experience this week. You know, each week on Monday, I come into the office in the morning and I start to prepare for the following Sunday's message. Now, I already have it outlined uh, for where I'm going in a series. I've got my passages picked out. And so I came in prepared to preach a familiar passage. Now, I've never preached on this passage before, but I've heard plenty of sermons on it. I've attended Sunday school growing up and I've heard different teachers' takes on it. And, you know, it was just familiar from reading through my Bible. And so if I'm honest, I was looking forward to a familiar passage and a week of just some enjoyable prep of pulling out some new illustrations, maybe reading a couple new things and hopefully delivering to you a wonderful message. But when I sat down to open up my Bible and read the passage, I was struck by something new, something that I hadn't seen before. And so you know, it ended up leading me on this path to where I realized this isn't going to be the message that I intended to preach, but it's one that I think we need to hear as we prepare for the rest of our series, How to Neighbor. And so if you've got your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 10, where we're going to look at an encounter that Jesus had with a religious expert in the law and his parable of the Good Samaritan as he addressed some of the things that this lawyer asked of him. So in your Bible, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Let's begin by looking at 25 to 29. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
So we've got this day that's sort of a normal day for Jesus and in the life of the people of God in Jesus' day. And that's where the rabbis, the teachers and their apprentices would gather around in the synagogue or other designated places from the city. And the teachers would teach and the students would ask questions as they looked at the Torah trying to understand God's word. And sometimes rabbis would debate with one another about the meaning of passages or how to follow God and follow the law. And so there were these constant conversations. But while that was an ordinary thing, this was an extraordinary circumstance. An expert in the law, someone who really understand the, understood the law of Moses, which was the law that God gave to Moses for his people, the Israelites, uh, he comes into the scene and he's obviously been listening to Jesus because he stands up to test him. And so this guy, uh, for starters, I'm just going to call him the lawyer because he's this sort of scholarly guy who understands law to the point where he would have known every nuance of the Torah and he would have understood the different implications of what different rabbis had to say about it. So he gets up and he says, all right, Jesus, I've heard you talking about different things, whether it's God and repentance and eternity. So I want you to tell me how do I inherit this eternal life? And so because this guy is an expert in the law, I'm sure he's got his checklist out. These are the things that Jesus should say, and this is the way he should say them. And as we know from looking at the life of Jesus, this was sort of a, a constant situation for Jesus. The, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the experts of the law constantly were trying to get him to trip up so they could kind of get rid of him. If he said something heretical or blasphemous, they could say, hey, we need to get rid of this guy. And so he quizzes him. But rather than Jesus answering in a straightforward way, Jesus turns the question around and asks the lawyer, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? Now, as we study the teachings of Jesus, we see that this is something he very often does. He, he comes to people when they ask them, him a question, and he either asks them a question in response or he teaches them through a story or parable. And you know when Jesus asks you a question or tells you a story, you're probably in trouble. Jesus is setting up to really drill home something, that the truth of the matter that you are wrestling through. And so, as we'll see, this guy gets himself in a little bit of trouble because Jesus turns it around on him. Jesus says, what does the law say? You're the expert in the Old Testament. You should know. And so the lawyer, he does respond by quoting scripture. He starts off by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. And then he quotes Leviticus 19.18 that says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, absolutely, you're correct. That's what we are called to do as God's people. We're called to live up to that standard. And if we do, we can inherit eternal life. Now, obviously, this kind of gets under this lawyer's skin. And there's something that kind of makes him a little bit prickly because we see that he justifies himself. Now, whether that's because Jesus sort of turned things around on him or because he felt that maybe Jesus was addressing something in his life, we, we see that he feels that he has to defend himself. And so what he says to Jesus is, well, then who is my neighbor? 
Now, if you think about it, that's kind of an arrogant thing to say, not because uh, it's a question that's arrogant in and of itself, but the assumptions that go on around it. Jesus has just had the man address the fact that he's supposed to love the Lord his God with everything he's got and love his neighbor as himself. And this guy sort of blows past this idea and clearly checks off the box. You know, I love God with everything I have. I mean, look at me. I'm, I'm a scholar in the text and the law, so I'm good in that regard. And he seems to say that he loves his neighbor as himself, but what he's challenging or maybe where he feels challenged from Jesus is that maybe Jesus has a different definition of who is his neighbor. And so he fires back at Jesus. Who is my neighbor then, Jesus? And this time, in order to respond, Jesus tells the story, a parable of the Good Samaritan. We read this in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So as we think about this story, let's remember that it's a parable. And whenever Jesus told a parable, what he's doing is telling a story with a purpose. And the purpose is to reveal a spiritual truth. You see, if we just read this story on the surface, it tells us this story of how to be kind and how to be a loving neighbor. And those are good things and we need to wrestle through them. But we also know that because of the way Jesus is teaching and how he consistently teaches, as we see throughout the Gospels, Jesus is trying to get us to uncover a deeper spiritual truth. And so let's look at the story to see what he could possibly be telling us about what theological truth lies within this interaction. So we have the story of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the way he gets mugged. And it's not just that they take his money, but they strip him of his clothes, they beat him up, leave him naked, and basically dead on the roadside. And Jesus sets this up in sort of a dramatic fashion because this is something for his listeners that would have been something that they were all too familiar with. You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is quite a treacherous route. Jerusalem sits at quite a high elevation, and Jericho sits below sea level, and there's over 3,000 feet of elevation gain between the two cities. Now, that elevation gain takes place over about 28 kilometers of windy, deserty road. But not only is the road itself dangerous, but because of the many outcroppings and how remote the land is in between the two cities, robbers would often lie in wait of travelers. And when there was someone who was an easy target, they would go and take advantage of them. And it wasn't just that they would take their money, but this was often a very violent route. So much so that there became a name for this route called the Blood 
pass. And we see that's the fate that this man met as he ran into the robbers. Now, we have this scene, and what happens from there is that as the man lies on the road, he clearly can't do anything for himself, but as luck would have it, the priest comes along. There's a priest traveling along in the same way. Now, if you were one of the people standing around Jesus listening to the story, you'd be going, hooray, a priest is here. This is, this is a great person because in Jesus' day, priests were really revered because they were people whose whole life revolved around worshiping God and helping other people. And so the listener would go, well, this is a great moral man who loves God and is supposed to love others, so he's going to do the right thing. But lo and behold, he, instead of helping, crosses over to the other side and goes on past the man. Ooh, that's a bit of a shot for the lawyer and those who are standing listening to the story. But of course they know because of the way stories were told then that someone else is going to come along. And so the next character that Jesus introduces is the Levite. Again, this is a, a good news message. There's a Levite. This is going to be another man who's religiously devout. You see, the Levites were a group of people whose job was to be assistants to the priests. They were there in the temple to, to do some of the jobs and to help people in order that they could make their sacrifices. And so this was a good person to come along who loved God and loved people. But did he really? As Jesus is trying to get us to understand, well, no, he's not. Now again, this is a big shot for the lawyer. He, I mean, he would have taken this personally as a religious scholar and teacher. He himself would identify with the priests and the Levites. These are his people. These are the people that he spends his time with. These are the ones he has friendships with in his workplace. But here Jesus is pointing out the fact that even though they might identify as religious followers, as people who are keeping God's law, they are falling short. But in the church world at the time, there were sort of three classes. We had the priests, the Levites, but then we also had just the Jewish laymen. These average Joe guys who love God and love their community, and so they were known to be good people. And so clearly, as Jesus told this story, they would all be anticipating this. I'm sure, much to uh, the dismay of the lawyer, there were people gathered around going, yeah, it's, it's, it's the everyday guy, the everyday Joe is going to be the hero. But much to their surprise even, Jesus introduces someone else. He introduces the Samaritan. Now that doesn't sound too bad to us because again, we have this connotation of a Samaritan being a good person. But to a first century Jew, this was not a good thing. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans have this ugly rivalry that started hundreds of years before this account took place. Long before, when there was the Babylonian captivity, some of the Jews stayed behind and intermarried with the Assyrians. Because of that, the Jews who were ca uh, captive and those who lived in the south and, and didn't experience the exile, they looked at this new group of people as half-breeds. They thought, well, you're only half-Jew and you're half this other culture. You've departed from God and from your family. And so there was this bitter rivalry. And it was actually quite an insult in Jewish culture at the time to call someone a Samaritan. 
We see in the book of John, there's this instant where there's an attack on someone and they're called a Samaritan and a person who's possessed by a demon. This is clearly not an affectionate relationship. And so as Jesus introduces the Samaritan, he's basically pointing out that an enemy is coming into the story. And here, as the Samaritan comes down the street, he sees someone who in normal everyday situations would be seen as an enemy of his or would perceive him as an enemy. But here, this isn't a conflict. The Samaritan ends up being the hero. As we see through the rest of this parable, Jesus spends time to talk about what the Samaritan did. As the Samaritan sees the man laying on the side of the road, naked and beaten half to death, he has, he's filled with compassion. He walks over and bandages the man and, and puts oil and wine on the wounds. And then he lifts the man up and places him on his donkey and rides down into Jericho, walking instead of riding as he heads down this treacherous path. When he arrives into town, he checks the man into the local inn, and there he stays overnight caring for him. We know that he invested all this time because Jesus then says the next day the man goes to the innkeeper and gives him two denarii and then tells him this will cover him. But if there's anything else the man needs, just put it on my tab. I will pay for whatever when I return. This is extravagant. The money he gives, it doesn't sound like a, a whole lot to us. Two of anything doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that is two days wages. And when we want to know how far that goes, we can actually look at some stuff that we have from archaeological finds. A number of years ago, a find happened at one archaeological dig that rooted up a signboard from an inn from a different region, but around the time of Jesus. And on it, it says that one night's or one day's room and board was one thirty-second of a denarius. That means that this man paid for two whole months of living. This is incredible. And not just was it two months of rent at this inn, but it's also a blank check. Hey, innkeeper, whatever this guy needs, I'll pay for it all. This is incredible. I mean, the question the lawyer asks, and maybe even we need to ask is, have I ever loved someone like that? I mean, sure, if we were in a situation where we needed to get help, we would do whatever it take, takes to, to take care of ourselves. If maybe we have a spouse or kids and they were hurt, we know for a fact that we would go through the most treacherous of situations. We would throw whatever money we had to take care of our loved ones. But for a neighbor, a stranger, someone we consider to be on the other side, would we do that? Probably not. Probably not a single one of us ever has. And even if we did it for a day, would we do it in these circumstances and for another day and another day? And would we be extravagant like that? Jesus takes the lawyer's question of who is my neighbor and pushes the envelope even further. He doesn't just say, who is my neighbor, but how should I be a neighbor? How do I truly love someone like I would love myself? 
as his listeners would be processing on this, all of this, he, he presses on with a question that we read in verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of a robber? Clearly, Jesus is pushing his point further. He's getting those who are listening and us by extension to, to recognize that what Jesus is really saying is wherever we go, all of those people in our path, no matter what walk of life they come from, no matter what religion, what race, whether we perceive them as an enemy, we are called to love them and love them extravagantly. And so we ask ourselves, who am I being a neighbor to instead? And how well am I living up to what it looks like to love my neighbor as myself? Now this obviously roots deep down and kind of gets at this lawyer because we see he responds to Jesus' question in verse 37 by saying, the one who had mercy on him. That's all he could say. That's all he could muster. I mean, this man is, is so angry and he dislikes Samaritans so much that, that this would be such a dig and he can't even speak the word Samaritan. So all he says is the one who has mercy. He has to answer the question. He has to be truthful as an expert in the law, but he really doesn't like it. And so after he says that, Jesus finishes the discussion with a simple statement. Go and do likewise. Now as I was sitting to read the scriptures and wrestling through this, what struck me this week wasn't any of the details about the people, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan. It wasn't the, the details about the extravagance that the, uh, uh, the Samaritan poured on this poor man. But what was struck me is the fact that when I look at this parable within the context of everything that's being written down, it goes far beyond the ethics of what's happening. Every time I've heard a message on this, I've always wrestled with the ethical implications. What am I supposed to do towards my neighbor? How am I supposed to live? And those are good and important questions. But again, there's this deeper spiritual truth that Jesus is getting us to understand. When we look at the parable within the context of understanding the first question that the lawyer asked, we see a different message. The lawyer asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so what Jesus does is he points out that the law is true, but what it takes to live up to that law is immense. When you think about what the Samaritan did, you can't help but think, there's no way I could live up to that standard. But as we know from God's word, there is a standard that God has. This is what it would take to experience eternal life without him. And there's just no way that we could measure up. And this is where the lawyer leaves the scene. And it's, it's actually quite a sad thing to think about because the lawyer actually misses out on what is right in front of him, which is the answer, the provider of eternal life. Again, that's why I love seeing this parable in context because it's actually what comes next that gives us even a little bit more of the story and the picture. As you continue on in Luke's account of Jesus' life, we see the next story is when Jesus goes and visits Martha and Mary. 
Now, in most of our Bibles, there's probably a gap right there. There's a little bit of a paragraph break, a new heading, Jesus visits Mary and Martha, and then a new story. But in Luke's original writing, these two stories were butted up against each other. Now, I don't have time to kind of go in and unpack all of this scenario, but what happens is Jesus goes to Martha's house, and there's Martha and Mary, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet while Martha's running around and doing all this work and, and slaving away to, to serve and cater for everyone. Finally, she's had enough, and she's sick of what Mary's doing, and so Martha comes, and she kind of goes at Jesus and attacks Mary this way, and Jesus just says, whoa, 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 whoa. Martha, you're actually the one missing out on what's going on here. The most important thing right now is to spend time here with me. So Mary had it right. It's the connection to Jesus that provides what we need. And, and that's what Jesus was leading this man to do in, in living out, trying to achieve the law. There is all sorts of places that we will fail. We cannot possibly live to this standard perfectly. But there Jesus is before the lawyer saying that he is the one who is the good Samaritan. As I thought about this and was wrestling through application, I, I thought that we needed to, to wrestle through both the theological and the practical application of this parable. As I've grown up hearing stories of the Good Samaritan, the question that's always asked at the end of the message is, are you the priest, the Levite, or are you going to be the Samaritan? Are you going to love and, and live lavishly towards those who are your neighbor? But today I'd like to ask two other questions about the two other people. The first question is this. Do you recognize that you're the person lying on the side of the road in need of the Good Samaritan? It's abundantly clear to me that none of us can meet God's standard. None of us can love God perfectly all the time with everything we have. None of us, have, we've already failed at loving everyone around us the way the Good Samaritan loved this man. You might even be a good person, but it's never going to live up. And so, because of that, because you've already blown it by spectacular proportions... You've already fallen short of God's standards and are separated from him for eternity. You're lying on the road, beaten and naked, half dead. You just can't do it on your own strength. But here's Jesus standing before you saying, you know what, I will sacrifice it all so that you can have life. And Jesus did just that. He went to the cross. He died. He paid the penalty for our sin. The debt is paid in full. Jesus, the good Samaritan, laid it all out for you so that you could experience the forgiveness of your sin if you just turn and receive what he's offering. The second question to ask is, are you loving your neighbor like the lawyer? 
Are you loving your neighbor like the lawyer? When I think of how the, the lawyer reacted and what his perception of loving his neighbor was, was that this is a checklist thing. When, whether it was out of legalism or a sense of guilt, he felt like he was loving his neighbor in a certain way just to sort of make the standard. But that's not ever going to get us very far. You know, as we go through this series, my intention is not to guilt you because if I guilt you into wanting to love your neighbor or you feel out of some legalistic sense that you have to accomplish this, we've failed already. We've already failed because God has told us we can't make his standard by ourselves. We just can't achieve it. But we've also failed because it, it allows us to, to be motivated by the complete wrong thing, which means we will never have enough. We won't have enough energy. We won't have enough drive. We won't have enough vision for how we are supposed to live. In his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, Ken Bailey writes about this parable and he speaks to this very thing. He says, Experience dictates that it is very hard to love the unlovely neighbor until the disciple of Jesus' heart is filled with the love of God, which provides the energy and motivation necessary for the arduous task of loving the neighbor. But if costly acts of love are extended to others out of the gratitude for the love of God, then the believer is sustained by the unwavering love of God towards him or her. Over the next few weeks, we're going to get into the how of how do we love our neighbor who's different than us? How do we love the poor in our community? How do we love the widow and the orphan? But before we get there, we have to address the heart issue. We have to understand why we do this. We have to understand our place in view of who we are within what Jesus is teaching we are people so undeservingly in a position of God's grace, but we are there because he loves us and he wants to give us life. Therefore, our motivation for loving other people is not one that we think will check the box. It's not one that we think will get us to the right place, but it's one of response of love because God first loved us. So as we go throughout this series, let us go not with guilt, but with the motivation of love. Father, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you enlighten your scriptures so that we can learn and hear from you. God, I pray that we would be conformed to what your desire is for us in this. God, for those of us who have not yet recognized where we are spiritually, that we are dead in our sin, that we have fallen short of your standard, Lord, would you reveal that to us and would we know that you are the good Samaritan. You are the one that we need to receive life and grace. We need to receive your goodness and mercy from. God, will we ask you for our forgiveness will we turn our lives towards you and live them in worship god for those of us who maybe we we view loving our neighbors as a checklist maybe we we, we have this overwhelming sense of legalism that or guilt that we carry with us god would you break us free of that would you allow us to see the wonder of your love for us and would that be our motivation 
Would it not be guilt and legalism? Would it not be things that weigh us down, but instead things that energize us for the difficult task of loving people as we love ourselves as an act of worship for you? Holy Spirit, strengthen us, empower us, allow us to live this out in our community so that we would see the name of Jesus raised high so people would come to know him and so God, you as the Father, would be glorified. God, be with us as we go to live this out today and through this week. And we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.